This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about self love with Dr. Shana Ali. It won't surprise you to know she's one of our favorite guests already, having been part of our COVID 19 series. She was in the last episode, actually, talking about adjusting to life as we come out of lockdown and all the mental health impact that can come with that, which I'd thoroughly recommend because as we come out of lockdown in different ways across the world, it remains incredibly relevant, so many of the tips that she gave. And she also did an interview with us, one of the bonus lockdown ones, right at the beginning of the lockdown as well. And in fact, this episode you're about to hear the interview for was recorded on the day lockdown begun. That's my excuse right up top if we're a little bit fuzzy on what was talked about in the interview, because it has been, what, like 15-ish weeks since recording this one? Wow, maybe 16, yeah. A very different time. So first off, we'll start with the definition of self-love from positivepsychology.com. A state of appreciation for oneself that grows with actions that support our physical, psychological and spiritual growth. And we also wanted to share a quote from Dr. Shana Ali. Our relationships with ourselves can be one of the most complicated of our lives, but also the most rewarding. So how do you feel about those first off? Inspired, absolutely in love with her, everything that I stand for. Absolutely. We do not connect with ourselves and love ourselves enough at all. Yeah. And that's certainly a theme that I see coming up again and again through our interviews and through mental health related volunteering I do. How self-love relates to almost every part of mental health. For example, so many people, when they talk about on the podcast, not getting support and really struggling with their mental health before they get that support, it comes back to not thinking they were worth it. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly something I've experienced with myself you know when when I've been particularly bad I've not believed I'm worth the help and actually I've felt at times that I'm worth the pain that I'm feeling yeah I should be mentally ill this is what I deserve and that's been a long journey of working on that that if we don't care about ourselves how can we ever practice caring about other people you know we are the relationship that we're in the longest that's how Dr Shana describes it And I think that's so important. We've talked about it with self-care, how you have to look after yourself as part of being a good friend, family member, colleague to people in your life. You have to take a certain amount of ownership and worth in order to think you deserve good mental health and you deserve the support that you're given and that you deserve recovery, ultimately. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention you can care and love other people if you don't love and care for yourself. And I also think it's important to mention that it's great that you've got to a place, Bobby, where you can recognise that maybe you didn't feel that you were worth the self-love and worth, you know, good things. Because a lot of us, including myself, when I was a bit younger and going through hard stuff, and maybe even now sometimes, my initial response would be, oh, I've never really felt like I'm, I'm not worthy. But my actions tell me otherwise. 
you know, I could stand there because of my position in life, and because of the work that I do. And I'm the last person that's going to ever stand there and say, I, I've, I don't feel that I'm worth loving myself or appreciating how good I am at this. You know, I would never say that because I know I'm damn worthy <laughs> of it. I know I am. We all are. I'm a human being. We all are. But do I practice that? Do I believe that? Do my actions and my behaviours really reflect that? Just because we may not all be able to convey and use the languages, Bobby, you know, you just have then and said, you know, there were times when I felt like this and I didn't feel like that because that's a brilliant place to be because at least you're aware of it. Right, for sure. And I think you have to bring a concept like this down to earth. When you say self-love as a term, a lot of people think of this kind of fantasy. I love myself. Yeah, this in the sky fantasy of you're brilliantly at peace with yourself and you don't have any criticisms. That's not what it is at all. If anything, a good contrast, I think, is that to me, it's the opposite of self-harm. And and in a very broad sense, not just in terms of self-harm we think about from a mental health perspective, but self-harm through our choices as well. Certain people we allow in our life, certain people we might be in Mm. relationships with where they're not appropriate or they are harmful and toxic to us. Self-love is the opposite where you do prioritise yourself Mm. enough to make choices that protect you and protect those around you because letting people in your life dictate it who don't deserve to be there, that has a negative effect on everyone. I think all of us know that friend that's in a relationship they shouldn't be in and we hate hearing about it and we just want them to get out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a good point. Self-love can be just not doing the things that are hurting you. You love yourself enough to stop doing the things that are hurting you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's it's along similar lines to the self-esteem episode we covered recently. Also, can't remember, I think we talk about it a little bit in the interview as well, how relationships are such a massive factor as well. And particularly, a lot of us can be raised to put our happiness in other people it's that kind of disney narrative that that i'm not so keen on if you just find the right prince or princess charming then you get your happily ever after Mm. and actually for us here in the real world we know that relationships even the best ones are a lot of work there is no marriage and happily ever after and in many ways there's less of that than previously in some ways you know there's a much higher level of divorce than there used to be decades ago i've got some stats for this as well in 2017 just over half of the adult population 51 percent in england and wales were married the second largest group 34.4 percent were single and so not only is it unrealistic to think that you can put your happiness in somebody else and is quite harmful and links quite heavily to codependency and and other concerns that we've talked about on the podcast. But it's also something that's too conditional. If your happiness is conditional on someone else being around, and yet nearly half of the population aren't in a a legal, committed relationship. Yeah, what does that say for them, basically? Yeah, are us single people? Am I just written off with my happiness? (laughs) Well, absolutely. And going back to the point you mentioned at the beginning that we loved, didn't we, when she said the longest relationship you're going to have is with yourself. Mm. So let's get that right straight away. And actually, I was listening to a podcast yesterday. Who's our favourite podcaster that we share together? That's our favourite together. Esther Perel, yeah. There was a a guest on there. She does her live Where Do We Begin therapy sessions. One half of the couple she was talking to said, 
it was we got with regard to her sexuality and loving herself. And she said, I've just only come to realise that my sexuality uh, originally belonged to India, then it belonged to my religion, then it belonged to my husband, and it's never belonged to me because she was struggling with sex and loving herself and enjoying who she is as a woman and what that represents. And it was really confounding. And Esther was like, I love that. I'm going to be, I have to use that because that is, that really kind of says a lot about that separation between actually, no, this is me. This is who you are. Like, love that about you. Don't create it or give it away to somebody else before you know what it is yourself. I think that's really a good point. And it's not to say that you should be the only priority in your relationship, but equally, you shouldn't be the opposite end. And your whole addition to the relationship is in service to the other person. Because that's the flip side of it. If we're expecting the other person to be responsible for our happiness, then we're also putting all that work on them. And actually, it should be a Mm. partnership and things that you work together individually and things you work together as a couple are all important. And you all have priorities. And particularly with your example, that can happen a lot where people's sex lives can be performative in order to please the other person. And actually, the best sex is when you're both enjoying yourselves. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> seems quite obvious when you say it like that, but is so often lost. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's absolutely key to the whole thing about, you know, the significance of your relationship as opposed to the success of it, how important it is to you both, what you both get out of it. That's what's important, not just, you know, we've been married for 25 years. Yeah. But not for nothing, it can be profoundly unattractive when people hate themselves. Yeah. (laughs) And I've been there. I have huge empathy for that. And a lot of my struggles with anorexia relate very closely to self-hatred and feeling that I needed to somehow change my appearance in order to make me less wrong. You know, that is how I saw it. And so that's not me saying that with judgment. It's just a learning opportunity. That yeah. by increasing our self-love, we can be more lovable to other people. And Lisa Nichols, one of my favourite motivational speakers, said that to one of your favourite people, Oprah. She said, we have to be the example to the world of how to love us. Wow. On that note, I feel like we should check in on how we're doing. Well, I'm still a little bit stumped from that last quote that you just said that's just really taken me back (laughs) and actually it was so beautiful that it's made me realize that the answer then to the next question which is how am I coping (laughs) isn't it most positive because I don't think I've been a great example to the world because I've just been you know what maybe I have because you know what I I'm gonna pat myself on the back in this moment because I've got through this I'm getting through it a lot better And I think a lot of people, if they stop and think about it, than they would have thought they would have if we're told six months ago, this is what you're going to go through. The panic and the anxiety that would have set in before we even locked down and we've just had to work through it. And the narrative has been a little bit like take each day as it comes because we don't know what's going to happen has enabled a lot of us, I think, to work through this. And now we're all, I'm getting a bit bored of these four walls. Honestly, I'm, I'm starting to think, ah, ah. But 
I spent 16 weeks in this house with my children and, and my partner and we have done bloody well. I, I'm actually really, really proud of us. Really, really proud. But again, I think it's because we've taken it each day as it comes because we've had nothing else. And I think if we remember that and take it into life and the next phase coming out of the pandemic, we'll do quite well by that. Yeah. So lesson. Very true. And I've just got to witness you've just been a great example of self-love. Your default <laughs> your default was going to be self-criticism as soon as I asked you that question. And then you actually took a beat and thought, you know what? When I think about it with compassion and empathy for myself, I haven't done badly. We have been doing what we could. No one ever expected that I was going to be a lockdown superstar. There is no winning. There is only coping in this. And so, yeah, you've done brilliantly. So thank you for the example of how to do self-love. Now you, you take a beat. (laughs) So I guess mine is similar that I've maybe out of necessity been having to practice this a bit more recently. So the last, I guess, two weeks particularly, I've gone back into a depressive slump. And I know that I have an ability to sound quite positive on the podcast and that is partly a a coping mechanism from learned from early childhood but honestly it has been really difficult the coming out of the lockdown has been the most difficult part for me there's been a lot of uncertainty there's been a lot of restlessness the pining for seeing people close to me again has been so much more intense now that we're nearly there than it was in the beginning when maybe this was more novel And we were just distracted by toilet roll and various other things. Mm -hmm. And now it's been really tough. And I think a lot of it, speaking to my counsellor, has been beginning to grieve. Because my life isn't going to be the same after this. I've already got a few career changes in mind of just certain things to tweak. The business that I run isn't going to be quite what it was when we come out of this. And I think Mm -hmm. overall it'll be better and it'll be more appropriate for the new business environment. But, you know, that and a few other things are going to be different. There's equally certain people in my life that I've got a clearer idea of by being away from them. And so I'm starting to grieve certain relationships, which I realise aren't appropriate for me anymore. And so there's a clear need to distance myself a little bit and focus on on newer or different friendships and relationships that are more positive and more healthy. So it's a slightly weird one to describe because it's depression coming out of what is positive life changes, but the changes are hard. There's still a grieving for my pre-lockdown life that I won't be returning to, even if that's in many ways not a bad thing. That's great that you can talk about that. That's the first step, isn't it? To know you know that there's light at the end of the tunnel and you know that you'll just deal with what you've got to deal with and you'll get through it that's the lesson I think there from from you isn't it you know you'll get through it thank you I appreciate that it's something that for the self-love angle has been really important that Mm -hmm. I could easily be trapped inside beating myself up for feeling like this being like you're feeling depressed again how bad are you going to get how could you let this happen I thought you were okay but In many ways, it feels entirely appropriate to be depressed right now. I've got a lot of concerns as we come out of lockdown. I've got a lot Mm -hmm. of work I need to do to settle into my new post-lockdown life at some point. And so this is part of me finding it difficult to cope. But I'm being nice to myself about it. 
and I may be slowing down a little bit and taking my time day to day to adjust so I can get more to an optimum level of mental health again. Good. And mm-hmm. you've booked yourself a hair appointment and you've had a gift <laughs> arrive. So you've got some, you know, at least you're in the hairdressers, I'm not. It's a little bit of self-love right there. A bit yeah. pruning. Well, I think that's where some of this outlook really helps, that if you just try and find the positive and the proactive things in it, that I know having a haircut will make me feel a bit more human again. Because although I had a haircut just before lockdown, I was very <laughs> lucky, it is at the point now where I'm starting to feel like I no longer look like myself. And for body dysmorphia reasons, if nothing else, that's not the best thing. But you're right, I've also received a gift which has made me feel important. <laughs> In that I just received, I can show you, listeners, I've saved showing it to Danielle um, until we record. And now I realise that it's going to end up being very ASMR. But I got this, an invite to the British Podcast Awards. Woohoo! We actually did not apply to be part of it this year. And there's no physical ceremony, so there's no ticket. But the fact that I've got a personal invite as an industry professional is very nice. I've also received in this, in this what was really a surprise box, I had no idea. I've got Harry bows. I've got branded party hats, four of them. Don't have four people here. Maybe the cat can wear one. Silly string, which I'd forgotten about from my childhood. You'll have um, fun. Yeah got little flags i've got all sorts of fun things it's a reminder that there are still people out there and that we are still part of something bigger even though i do feel more isolated at the moment and on a similar note thank you for the segue we are up for the podcast awards again obviously i've mentioned the british podcast awards there's also an international one that preceded it and you can find that at podcastawards.com where you can go on now and you can vote for us to be a finalist in the health category. So last year we won that one after getting to the top 10 finalists. And so if you're up for helping us towards that again, which really does help the podcast reach more people, really helps our aim of destigmatizing mental health and getting more and more cool guests on the show as well, you can go along and vote for us now. So the link for that will be in the description. We're in the health category And your vote could help secure us being in the top 10, which then a panel of industry professionals vote on to decide the winner. Woohoo! For everybody that voted last year, I know we think we said that, but, you know, please go on and vote again if you're still with us and our new listeners. Yes, thank you again for that. Thank you in advance for voting this year. If we won two years in a row, that would be so incredible. And particularly in the middle of the pandemic and everything else that's going on. It's just something nice and proactive to be able to focus on for us. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that. Please vote. And with that all said, we will now get into the interview with Shana Ali. As we mentioned, she's been on two episodes previously. So we're really delighted to share with you what was actually, strangely, the first of all of those interviews on self-love. But first... Who's our sponsor? Let's find out. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. I'm Dr. Shana. I'm a mental health therapist, educator, and advocate. I'd like to say that this was a field that I've been passionate about my whole life, but that unfortunately is not the truth. I didn't realize how important mental health was until my mental health concerns started to come to the surface in college. This was a really exciting time of life for me and a transition, and I was looking forward to this for a very long time. But I started to notice different symptoms in myself. Fortunately for me, though, I was also taking classes in psychology, so I started to notice things about racing thoughts, standards, worries, and distorted thoughts into fears. And before you know it, I was able to figure out that I was struggling with my own anxiety. And it was also really eye-opening for me to realize that that wasn't necessarily a new problem. So as I started to delve into this and try to work on my own well-being, I realized, wow, I've really been living with this my whole life. I just didn't realize this was a problem, so to speak. Luckily for me, though, I was able to get help during that time. But when I reflected on my journey and I thought about how, how could I have missed these signs my entire life? You know, and I really saw myself as reflective and self-aware. So how did these things not match? How could I be self-aware but not see these signs? And that was when I really learned the heavy hold of stigma. So it was then that it became a turning point for me that I knew I wanted this career in mental wellness. And it wasn't just to be a practitioner, which I absolutely love and I'm grateful that I get to be a therapist, but also as a mental health educator is how can I share more with others from my clients to strangers to help them understand the different signs of mental health, the stigma that might be affecting them and the steps that they can take to be more mentally well. Wow, that's really powerful. What a great summary. That was actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, what you thought held you back from recognizing these symptoms. And so in terms of that, do you feel the stigma held you back then from getting support or from speaking to others about what you'd realized? Absolutely. I think so. And, you know, when I think about stigma, especially when I reflect for myself, so to use my personal journey, I think that stigma came in layers. So it wasn't just one thing. And once I broke through it, I was free. It, there were several layers of that, right? So I am a first-generation American, so my parents were immigrants to this country from Guyana. So even if I think about the cultural upbringings of that and what mental health looks like, it's actually not what we think of health, right? It's mental illness. So, you know, hearing stories about asylums and people who had gone mad and all of these really pejorative stereotyped images made me think, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with me, right? Because I'm still functioning. I'm fine. Look at mm -hmm. me. And I was using this really biased view. So that was the cultural lens. But, you know, being raised in the States, we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go when it comes to stigma. A lot of people are seeking help more than, more than in the past. 
but accessibility to resources left and right, being a minority person, not only being first generation, but being the firstborn in my family and the pressures of that. I can just see so many layers of stigma that definitely helped held me back. But the way I see it now, when I'm in my role as a clinician and as an educator, is ironically owning the stigma that has affected me my whole life helps me to connect to other people. Because I do believe we are all affected by stigma in some capacity. So when I'm able to own that, you know, someone can see that, oh, I'm a therapist now. So therefore they have this notion of me being perfectly well. And I promise you I'm not, but I promise you I'm constantly working on it. I'm very open about my approach to being a therapist who is also in therapy. And I think that's something that I owe people that honesty to say, this is how I'm willing to break through that stigma. I can see how this stigma is affecting you and let's work together to then shed away through that stigma too. Right. I really love that. And also that's an honesty, not just for you, but for your profession, because it is considered best practice for all counsellors to also be in counselling. How else are you going to deal with the things that may come up from the stories that you hear? And some of that can be quite traumatic, what people share with you. Absolutely. and. I have to tell you, I think that mental health counseling best practice standards are actually quite stellar. I think they're a great place to try to use as your own ethical guidance and practice and how you are taking your own mental well-being. But also, realistically speaking, I've seen many of my colleagues suffer from burnout, from not going to seek a counselor because of this notion that, well, I went to school for this. I trained for this. I'm a good counselor. So therefore I should be able to handle this on my own. Right. Or even if we step counseling aside for a second and we think about self-care is okay, well, I can preach to my clients how important it is, but am I also practicing what I preach? So I do think that if we use the best practice standards, well, the honest truth is we have to take care of ourselves before we take care of others. And if we are going to say that we are better with therapy, we have to be willing to go to therapy. But I also have to say the honest truth is that in my field, I still see a lot of stigma that many of my colleagues are unwilling to seek help out of that embarrassment and that shame, which shows even people who are trained to break through the stigma are still held on by it. For sure. And it's something that I think a lot of people miss about stigma that I love that you mentioned it in terms of layers. We often think about it in a a very broad way that it kind of hangs in the air and it all affects us in similar ways, but it doesn't, it affects us all differently. And I think that point about counsellors needing to be empowered to also get help themselves is so important because in doing so, it breaks down this idea of binary mental health that I constantly rage against, that you're either ill or you're well. And actually there's a spectrum we're all on. There's maintenance we all need to do. And mental health is far more of a journey than a destination. I think that's beautifully said, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I find it something that I usually use in my approach to mental wellness when I'm working with a client is I use a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy methods. So within that, we're looking more in the quality of your thoughts. We often look at thinking distortions, right? And one of those is black and white thinking. So thinking something is either this or either that. 
right? So we are either well or we are not. So something I always encourage is for to help us expand our mind in general is there are very few things that are either this or that. So encouraging that spectrum of thinking also kind of alleviates some of that tension and perfection sometimes we experience of, you know, needing to be perfectly well, whatever that looks like. <laughs> right, absolutely. That if you're not perfect, it's somehow compromising who you are and your profession. And it's not true at all. And there'd be a hell of a lot less counsellors in the world if we all stuck to that. I don't think there would be. <laughs> <laughs> no one's perfect. It's it's a really important part of the approach that I take to mental wellness, but that's also part of where the self-love comes in is even when people are excited to join in and start therapy for the first time, we still have some of these unhealthy thinking patterns such as perfection. And the second we can start to get rid of and release that notion that perfect is possible, there's so much freedom in that. Yeah. And so I'm glad you brought up self-love, today's episode theme. I'm interested to know then you've got this journey going on of overcoming stigma. I imagine there was also a journey going on about self-love and feeling worth the support around the same time. Is that right? Yeah, actually, for me, you know, I shared a little bit about my journey generally. And self-love was a big cornerstone of that for me. It was a new term for me when I was starting to work on my own anxiety and my mental well-being. And I realized that it was working for me, but I kind of set it aside as this is my own practice. And I continued on with, you know, getting my degree and then moving into more of an educator role. And, and I just thought that that's, that's what works for me. What works for me may not work for everyone. And when I was noticing my clients, I, I mean, I'm very fortunate to work with many diverse clients coming in with a variety of mental health concerns. But something I was noticing that was consistent was that they were all lacking self-love to some capacity, the self-love that had resonated with me and had helped me so much. So I thought, you know, okay, maybe there's something to be said here of this worked for me and maybe this is an approach that can work for other people. And I started to share about it in my sessions and with my colleagues. And then from there, I started sharing it with the wider public. Now, going back to the stigma around self-love, What's really interesting is in the comfort of a counseling session, when there is lack of judgment and bias and honesty and appreciation and healthy communication, I haven't come into a lot of stigma in session. It's more society's stigma around self-love. So many of my clients are very open to the notion of, okay, this makes sense. I could see how this would affect my self-esteem or my you know, depression or my anxiety, what have you. Clients were... Clients were seeing that quite clearly how it was a puzzle piece. It was my recognition that with the wider society, that's where I had the stigma of self-love, of people saying self-love is selfish or narcissistic or it's unnecessary or it's rude, you know, all of these things. I was hearing that more from the wider world. So that came from when I was starting to deliver this more through the workbook and share it in a wider arena that I started to hear a lot more of that stigma about self-love. And it's a part of the power of counselling in a way that you are able to create that safe space for somebody, but it's only really as good as its ability to help them outside the room, that they can have excellent communication with their counsellor, but if they don't have excellent communication elsewhere, 
that's not as helpful to them. What sort of things were you finding held you or your clients back in terms of self-love? Yeah, so even though clients were more open to seeing self-love and trying to infuse it into their mental wellness journey, I always make sure that I start off exploring some of the obstacles in self-love. So even if there isn't that clear lock at the door that I was noticing with more strangers and wider society, we all have a little bit of our original judgment when it comes to self-love. So I always make sure we talk about this first. So, you know, are you interested in it? But also, what are your thoughts about it? Like, be honest, be open, and let's talk about that. So many times people think, well, this is selfish. I can't. It's already one thing for me to be in therapy trying to work on myself. Now I'm going to spend more time on me. That seems really narcissistic. That seems like I'm careless to other people in my world. I love when this comes up because I understand that there's a misconception around self-love. That self-love, because it starts with the word self, there's this idea that the investment and the benefits stay within a bubble. Mm -hmm. That if I'm working on it for me, that I will only benefit. And also, if I'm working on it for me, I'm taking from my loved ones. So this is time that I can spend with a partner or with a friend. And instead, I'm taking time for me and they're going to lose out. I really don't see true, sincere self-love to be that way at all. I actually see self-love as working on what you can manage. And really, you can't control anyone else, but you can manage yourself the best you can. And self-love is an investment in you to be better able to be well. And then therefore, there's a ripple effect in the lives of others as well. So when you are practicing self-love, I truly believe that then you can be a better partner. You can be a better friend, a better parent, child, what have you, that there is a ripple effect there and that I believe goes quite large. I think it goes into community and more of a global impact as well. So I actually don't see that. And I, I think that in a healthy relationship, there is that ebb and flow that Partners can work on self-love in a synchronous way that there is now I'm investing in me so I can be better there for you. Gosh, doesn't that just sound like perfect intimacy? I just think I think you have bias. I just think that that's the healthiest relationship is when we're all working on managing ourselves and loving ourselves so we can love others better. Yeah, I really love that. That's so true. Also, what you've mentioned there is so key and a great thing for people to hear, because when you are struggling with symptoms of mental illness, often that not only impacts your ability to self-love, but also your ability to prioritize it. Because you can already feel that you're letting people down or you're, you know, not your usual self. Then maybe you're going to therapy and you feel like that can be quite self-involved at a time when you're already potentially having a lower opinion of yourself. So then to be told, no, you have to value yourself right now. A lot of people may think, but what is it to value? Mm, absolutely. And I appreciate you bringing up the notion that when you are struggling in that moment of time with mental illness and you're not yet in that spectrum of mental well-being, that's where self-love is the hardest. Absolutely. And that's where it's also most needed. And that friction can be really difficult for people to hear. I need this, but I don't feel like I have the resources to do it. And that is where that journey approach, I know you use that perspective and I use it too when it comes to mental well-being, is that, okay, but we're on the path and it doesn't matter about the destination approach. 
It's more about being on there. That's what matters. So even taking some time to think about like, gosh, that's painful to realize I know that I need it. Logically, I know that I need it, but I do not feel capable right now. That's difficult, but at least the logic mind is coming and saying, I know I need it. So validating that experience instead of disregarding it, I think, I think that's really unfair. And sometimes self-love comes, it gets branded in this aggressive way. And I'm truthfully not a big fan of that, of you have to have it and you have to have it now and just do it. That goes really against the journey approach that I take for mental well-being. And to me, just working on it, that is just enough self-love in some context, you know, is even just opening your mind up to, I could benefit from this. I will work on this. That is self-love. It doesn't have to be some luxurious vacation. It doesn't have to mean that if you're not needing to, that you don't need to go to some sort of retreat for healing. Sometimes that's the case, but it, it doesn't need to mean that. It just can be, I know that I need this. So I'm going to honor myself by working towards this. And that's self-love too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because that's a, a similar comparison with, with other areas that are, that are like this. So you've also got self-esteem, you've also got self-care, where there's a lot of crossover. But what all of them have in common is that by being too rigid about it, and trying to focus so much on a target of an idealized version of that is actually quite counterproductive. That for someone that is struggling with self-love, feeling like, oh, now I'm failing at self-love, it could be another stick they beat themselves with. Absolutely. And I have a lot of compassion for people who struggle in that approach, kind of using that all or nothing mentality for self-love too. Here's another thing that I can struggle with, you know? And that, that's really difficult. So I encourage people to think more of that spectrum approach and seeing instead of thinking about the destination, just being grateful that you're choosing to be on that journey. It doesn't matter about the assessment of where you are. It's the fact that you're on it, that that is a big win. And in some contexts, just even saying, I know that I need to work on my self-love, that can actually be a really self-loving statement that is so profound in that space and that is enough yeah what a great message in terms of the practical side of this when you do come across that conflict with clients how do you approach that and try and work on it with them yeah i really believe in creating space to honor some of these difficult moments of friction i think while it might be tempting to say okay you don't have it let's fill this void i don't work with that approach what i believe is where is the lacking coming from you know, what is it that may have contributed to that? We were talking about stigma before. There could be that. There could be beliefs in family systems. You know, my, my mother believes that it's selfish or my father believes that it's selfish or whatever it may be. Or, you know, my coach told me this was selfish. Whoever those voices are, we make space to understand what is it that makes it so difficult. So we were talking about mental illness. So the diagnosis itself could make it difficult. But I believe it's helpful if we just lay it all out in a session. So really taking a look of what are all the things that makes it difficult? Maybe it is my faith system. Maybe it's the culture that I belong to. Maybe it's my past toxic relationship. Maybe it's more of what my past therapist said to me. Who knows? But at least we call it out then. So then we know how to work with that. 
I think sometimes what happens when people are struggling, especially in the beginning with self-love, is there's a lot of self-blame and shame of I can't do it, so it's therefore my fault. But it's helpful to disarm the roots. So knowing, oh, this is because of this family dynamic, or this was because of this toxic relationship, or this is because of how I'm interpreting my culture. Those things, then once it's out, then we can work on it. And it's really helpful to disarm that it's not just you. So it's not just that you are holding yourself back. There are other things that have now infused and have kind of trained your brain to be against the notion of self-love. So we kind of work on retraining the brain, right? To make space for it little by little. Yeah, that sounds really great. And in terms of then, we talked a little bit about the importance of bringing what you learn in the session out into the outside world, you know, keeping that resilience with you in a world that that can demonize self-love as we've described. So what kind of tools do you focus on around that? So even in the beginning, right, when we were highlighting those different forms of stigma, so to speak, you know, I have these mixed messages from my family, from my community, what have you. I'm mindful of that. So then as we're working on our self-love journey in session, I always try to make something practical of practicing outside of session is therapy is a very specific, protective, beautiful space, right? And I am doing you a disservice if you can flourish in your self-love in session, but the practicality to your world is not actually adhering. Mm -hmm. So I always try to explore that of at the end is when you try this, what do you anticipate could happen? You know, what are the resources you need to use this? So maybe that's boundaries. Maybe it's communication skills. Maybe it's structured activities. It really is different from person to person. But in my approach, it's helpful to address the different concepts that are within self-love and teaching those skills, but always having more of a practical component. So many times I'll, I'll bring up, you know, when we first talked about this, you mentioned that an obstacle was your faith system, let's say. So when you now go to your institution of faith, how are you going to still be able to practice self-love? So we talk about more practical settings to make sure that it's, yes, learn the lesson within session, but how can we also prepare you for the world? For sure. And so do you find then when working with your clients, there's a lot of differences? You've talked about the reasons why people may be held back from self-love or that are making them feel more negative towards themselves. Do you then find the reasons for that affect how you need to work with them? Absolutely. While I've noticed that some things are very consistent, so I truly believe we all need self-love to some level, and I believe we all have certain obstacles for self-love, and we all have some strengths for self-love, right? Those are the three things that I've noticed in my journey personally, but also in helping others that are consistent. Pretty much everything else has a lot of variance. And this, I really don't mind. I actually love honoring this because I believe in more of an individualistic approach to mental well-being. While I think it is nice to have the notion that here's this theory or here's this approach that generally works for people. As humans, we are just multifaceted, complicated beings, right? So it's hard to imagine that this one tailored approach is going to work perfectly for everybody. I just don't believe that that's the case, right? So going from that notion, while I know that we all need it, we all have some of our obstacles and we all have our strengths. When I'm working with someone, I think it's helpful to normalize 
that it's important that they infuse their true selves into the process. So that could be acknowledging their cultural heritage. That could be making space to talk about their mental health diagnosis. It could be talking about, you know, the different goals they have in life and infusing these different aspects that it makes it personalized. I do understand that when people are first coming to the notion of self-love, especially if they're ready and excited for it and they're already bought in that this is going to help their mental well-being, the excitement causes people to want to copy and paste. Tell me what you did and now let me do it. You clearly have worked really hard at this, so what do you do? And while I'm happy to be honest and authentic about my journey, I'm also really transparent about how I do not expect the methods that worked for me to work perfectly for anybody else, right? Because perfect doesn't exist anyway. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what I do is I share, here are some things, maybe consider it, but make it your own, right? So for example, the example that I often use is yoga. One of the segments of self-love is self-care, right? And within that, there are different practices, coping skills that can help us to care for and then love ourselves, right? These are behavioral things. For me, one of my go-to things is yoga. Now I'm really conscientious about this because while it works for me, I don't anticipate it would work for everyone else. And also there's ability levels, right? So it would be really insensitive of me to say, this is the method that definitely works for self-care, it works for me, so therefore it's going to work for you. And you have someone who may not be able-bodied enough to be able to practice more of the vinyasa style that I practice, right? So that wouldn't be fair to them in that way. It's also helpful to recognize that it's important for you to tailor your own journey. Yeah. So we are unfortunately coming up to the end of our time. So we'll just wrap up then a little bit revisiting your own experience. So having gone through this self-love journey yourself and having no doubt learned a whole lot by going through that process with clients as well. How have you found that benefits your life and your mental health? You know, sometimes it's hard to imagine my life without this because I take it so seriously and I practice it quite religiously because I've noticed the times that I have slipped in the past from being kind to myself and having self-respect. My mental health almost immediately took a toll. And I know it's odd to make that direct connection, but, you know, when I look back and I reflect, that's really the theme that I see. So, I mean, it has been so crucial for my mental well-being. Self-love is the cornerstone. So those different segments, and while it might look different every day, you know, awareness, exploration, self-care, kindness, esteem, growth, all of those different aspects I practice on some form every day. It's not even a lot, right? It's just a little form every day that helps my mental well-being to be in check. It just works hand in hand. So I'm really grateful for it. And, you know, it's something that I, it's important for me to say is I don't see myself as a self-love expert. And because of that, it's my journey is a continuous one. And I'm happy to help people while I'm also helping myself. But you know, it bothers me sometimes to the notion of an expert because it, it goes with that notion of you have arrived, mm -hmm. you know, that, that final destination here you are, you are well. So for me, it's I'm constantly learning and practicing self-love and I'm happy to share that with other people too. Great. And <laughs> we're very grateful for that. So if people do want to learn more about this and potentially read your book, which has some really great written insights, but also loads of practical exercises and very much a kind of workbook approach in that way. What would you want to tell them about that? 
I think it's helpful to understand even the point of why I created that workbook. And it was to be a practical guide to self-love. I noticed that when a lot of people were first recognizing that self-love was important, there was this now what type question. So what do I do about that? Is it just a thought? Do I just think about it? How do I go from not having self-love to practicing it? What do I do? So it is a guide. So making sure that you honor yourself in the process. If you do pick it up and you do want to use it, taking it bit by bit, being patient with yourself throughout the process, it's absolutely okay to go out of order. It was created developmentally to go sequential, but that's absolutely fine if you're struggling with something early on, let's say, and you need to jump around, honor yourself in the journey. And, you know, it's also helpful to do some of those reflections more than once. So please do not think for any reason that once you get through the book that you are done with your self-love journey. I personally continuously use it, which is a question I often get. Do you use your own book? I'm like, <laughs> of course I use it. <laughs> of course I use it. I use it often because I don't believe that I'm just done with it. I now use it as an approach of, you know, today I feel like I'm struggling a little bit with self-esteem. So I pop up to the self-esteem chapter. I usually kind of date it too, because it's interesting to see how you do an activity one time and revisiting it. So, you know, being patient with yourself, tailor it to what your needs are, are really important points for anyone who chooses the workbook as a part of their self-love journey. Brilliant. I love that. So I will put a link to it in the episode description if anyone wants to go take a look at that and yeah is there is there any parting message you want to share i just want to say thank you so much for your time i'm really passionate about both mental wellness and self-love so getting to speak about both really makes my day (laughs) so i really hope that this helps others to really take a look at their stigma and how you can also when working through that create some space for your self-love practice brilliant thank you so much thank you for joining us Thank you. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.